Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. And let's turn together to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, where we're, uh, we come this evening as we continue in our study in this book to the sixth vision, the sixth out of seven vision of God's judgments in Revelation. And we have uh, seen as we come to the last of these seven, we find that they focus primarily on the conclusion of the age. Although the seventh in Revelation 20, I believe, goes and begins again at the cross of Christ, and we'll look at that next week. But as these visions have gone along, they've described God's judgments throughout the church age, each one culminating in the return of Christ. And as we've gone along, we've seen that it's become clearer and clearer And this sixth vision focuses exclusively then on the return of Jesus Christ. Let us hear God's word, Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let us pray. Father, 
We stand before this stupendous vision of the book of Revelation, of the return of Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see, to be built up in faith in Jesus our Lord, and that you would give us a heart for you more deeply because we understand the realities of the return of Jesus Christ. So open our hearts and our minds, we pray in his name. Amen. One of the great longings of the human heart is the longing for justice. Don't we all feel that in our world very intensely at times? And the cry of the oppressed throughout the world through the ages has been a cry for relief from oppression, of course. But in addition, it has also been the heart cry for justice for the oppressed to be carried out. And for believers especially, the cry for justice has been a central hope. And it's linked to the return of Christ. Psalm 10, which is a prayer for the oppressed, concludes with this stirring declaration and promise to those who are oppressed. And the the psalm concludes with a prayer. It says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Bible has a lot about, it says a lot about justice and seeking God if you're oppressed. But here in Revelation 19 at verse 11 with the unfolding of this sixth vision that we have finally come to, we gaze at last, really in full, we would say, on the blazing appearance of Jesus Christ. And it's described elsewhere in the New Testament as well, his coming in glory at the end of the age to usher in full redemption for his people. And we'll see more of that in chapters to come. But here, the emphasis is to finally bring complete justice complete judgment, we would say. And what a powerful and compelling picture we are given here of the majesty and the glory and the wisdom of the Son of God to perfectly judge the world and to to usher in complete justice. Let us look at this in two parts, really. One is to behold this vision of the Son of God in His appearing. And in a sense, the whole book of Revelation has been building up to this point. Each vision, each cycle, as we have seen, has led up to the return of Christ, but not until now do we see it fully described in this symbolic form that we have before us. And chapters 20 through 22 complete the picture for us. And with not only the final judgment upon those who are apart from Christ, but also this beautiful conclusion to the book of Revelation that we will see, the final blessedness of those who are in Christ. But here this evening, we're we're looking at the return of Christ in his glory to judge the world. And do you remember back in chapter 6 when we were seeing the judgments of God unfold and we heard at one point in chapter 6, we heard the cry of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. 
In chapter 6, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The saints before the altar are pictured there as waiting with expectancy for, in a sense, the final act of this revelation for God for the sovereign Lord who is described as holy and true to finally judge and avenge their blood, those who had been slain because of the word of God. Well, finally now in chapter 19, at verse 11, the answer comes to that cry of those souls who had been slain. And I want us to look at six symbolic elements of this vision of our Lord's return and then look at a few applications of that. So this is the main point here, these six symbolic elements. And you could probably see more than six. I've divided it into six. The first is the rider on the white horse. The Apostle John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Can you imagine it? I don't know about you, but the last few weeks have been a glorious autumn here. Have Hasn't it just been wonderful with all the sunny days and not a lot of windstorms or hurricane-like wind here to blow all the leaves down? And if you're like me, you just drive around on a sunny day and you see the beauty and you just want to praise the Lord for the glory of His creation. But in a sense, how does that pale in comparison to this vision the Apostle John has of the heavens opened and behold, a white horse and unfolds this picture, this vision of grandeur and beauty and really, in a sense, terror and dread. One sitting on a white horse. And notice that throughout here, the name Jesus Christ is not used. He's spoken of with words that are indefinite, but we all know who it is. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This imagery is the imagery of a conquering king, a victorious warrior, And we're told at the end of verse 11 that in righteousness he judges and makes war. The vision as it unfolds is a scene of warfare. Although we'll see that it's not really a battle as we would think with the, you know, the battle raging and ebbing and flowing. It's not like that at all. It's completely a one-sided war or battle, we would say. And we'll see how it's, it's like through the breath of his mouth, the rider slays the wicked, the armies of the the other side. In fact, in verse 14, we see that he is not alone. It says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. So a whole army comes out of heaven. Now, a question arises, commentators talk about, is this an angelic army only? Or is it... uh, the army of those who are redeemed of all time, or is it both? And you could argue it both ways because lots of references in Revelation talk about angels associated with the judgment and the final day, and Jesus talks about that. Here, they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, which seems to refer more to the saints than to angels, but it could be either. Back in chapter 17, verse 14, We read, it mentions believers 
And it says, For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So at that description of the coming of Christ, it seems that he's talking about believers. Uh, But it's probably best to see this army as both angels and believers, all rolled into one, riding white horses as well. What a scene the Apostle John saw. Stop and think what a different picture we find here compared to the lowliness and the humility of the first coming of Jesus Christ. It won't be long here until we'll be celebrating Advent and celebrating Jesus' coming in the flesh, the Son of God condescending to come and be born in a stable And we will be just, again, as we always do at that time of year, standing in awe of the great humility of Jesus Christ, of his his condescension to love us. Or we think of Palm Sunday, still with the first coming of Christ, of course, with the crowds shouting and surrounding the roads as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But we remember that he came on a lowly donkey. Uh, not the symbol typical in the ancient world of a conquering king. The conquering king came on a white horse. And that's what we have here in Revelation. Jesus is being portrayed here as the divine warrior bringing just judgment and vindicating his oppressed and persecuted people. We see another element, our second element In verse 11, with the name, he is called faithful and true. Meaning faithful and true to his people to fulfill his word of promise to them, but also faithful and true true to his own word of promise, of threatened judgment. In other words, Jesus Christ is absolutely faithful. He is true to the word of God. We'll see he is the word of God. Jesus is true to his word of promise, so we can absolutely count on that. You know, we don't ever know for sure what's going to happen in this world. No one can prognosticate and know what's going to happen in the election this week. Phillies fans couldn't prognosticate whether the Phillies would win or not. Now we know the sad truth of what happened last night. Uh, But you can be absolutely sure that the word of the Lord is true, and Jesus Christ fulfills that perfectly. He is faithful and true. And the third element in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Again, think of it. At his first coming, the eyes of Jesus Christ, just think of what it would have been like to to have been a person in ancient Israel, to see Jesus Christ along a dusty road and to see how he spoke with such authority and such compassion and invited the crowds to come hear him. And his eyes were filled with that love and compassion. And there were times even Scripture records that he wept. We think of him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus or we think of nearing the time in which he would lay down his life on the cross even as the holy city of Jerusalem was rejecting him and would soon cry out against him Even then, he wept for the city of Jerusalem. He wept over their impenitence and refusing to repent and turn to him. 
And even so, in this present gospel age, the Lord is still long-suffering in his compassion to sinful and rebellious human beings, declaring, now is the day of salvation. And we know that the Bible says, whosoever will, let him, let, let him come. Let the one who is thirsty come. That's at the very final chapter of the book of Revelation. But that day of salvation will finally be over when Jesus Christ returns, when Revelation 19 finally is fulfilled, when he comes to judge the world and to glorify his people finally in their glorified state. And this idea of eyes like a flame of fire highlight that the eyes and the mind of God see all. It's just Paul states it in Romans Chapter 2, verse 16, on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That's another way of describing eyes like a flame of fire. You may think that somehow you can hide from the penetrating eyes of Jesus Christ. And maybe there is some sense in which you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're doing that as you live your life. Like as if he doesn't see you and know you through and through. And that you can kind of, it's almost like a a two-year-old trying to hide from his or her mom and, you know, running into the other room and hiding under a chair, you know, with his feet sticking out and everything and thinking somehow that he can escape from, you know, the, um, the sure eye of his mother or his dad. But the scriptures make it clear that it's impossible to escape the seeing eyes of flame. And please don't put off trusting in Jesus Christ in your life because being hidden in Jesus Christ through faith in him is the only way that any of us will have refuge on that day when Jesus appears in glory. The fourth element is again in verse 12. On his head are many diadems. It says, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Uh, the diadems are our crowns. Crown him with many crowns. That's from this verse, in a sense. We found already that in contrast to the beast, who in chapter 13, verse 1, has ten diadems, and in contrast to the dragon, who is Satan, who has seven diadems, chapter 12, verse 3, Jesus has many diadems. In other words, he has abundantly more diadems. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, uh, the many diadems, many commentators see as being related to verse 16 because there's a similarity in the way it's described there because it says in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's king of kings. He has all the crowns. He is over all. Verse 12, the last part of that verse says, he has a name written. Notice that phrase. It's the same way as verse 16. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Commentators are divided over what that exactly means, that he has a name no one knows but himself. Some would argue that... um, that verse 16 reveals the name. And a similar st- structure was earlier on, a chapter or two ago, when the mystery of Babylon 
was revealed, and finally the name Babylon was revealed. But um, it could mean because the se- sentence structure is so similar that the idea would be in verse 12, no one knows the name, but Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, reveals his name to those who are his own, but no one else knows them. In other words, only believers really know and experience the character of God and know the name of God. Or the other sense of that phrase in verse 12 is that the Son of God has a name that is not knowable in the sense that uh, it is beyond ever fully knowing. And God, in that sense, for all eternity, all of us who know God through Jesus Christ We will never be plumbing the depths of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We will always be growing throughout eternity in knowing Jesus Christ better. It's not like once Jesus returns and we see him face to face that we'll fully know God. No, we'll always be growing in the knowledge of God. And in that sense, we will never fully know the name. Well, one of those ideas is probably the right one. And they're both scriptural ideas. And then our fifth element in verse 13 is the robe dipped in blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. It is very unlikely that this is referring to Christ's blood shed on the cross. Some have asserted that idea that it's talking about the blood of Christ shed on the cross, and here it's shown being on his robes. But the whole context of this picture of Christ's coming is not that he, in a sense, is showing forth his redemptive death, and it's not about him applying his work of redemption at this point, but rather he is coming as a judge in this theme, in this symbolic nature of a conqueror. And this picture of his robe dipped in blood is thematically linked to verse 15. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. In verse 13, he's called the word of God. In verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And so it's by the word of his mouth, the sword of the spirit, that the word of God defeats the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. It's all done with the breath of his mouth. He is victorious. In fact, all those riding with him don't have to do anything for him. They just ride in his train. All the saints and angels arrayed in fine linen, they follow him. He is the one who wins the day with simply the word of his mouth. The symbol of a robe dipped in blood is really a solemn, and we would say it's an awesome symbol, using that word awesome in its original sense of of awe-inspiring and in a sense awful. And verse 15 goes on to fill in the meaning of this. It says that uh, he will rule them with a rod of iron. What we see there is the description of the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Way back at the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is about the Word of God. Psalm 2 is about God's anointed King. 
the Christ. And it's a description of the nations plotting against the Lord's anointed one. Verse 2 of the psalm says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. How often in the history of the world have rulers and kings opposed the kingdom of God? Certainly much, much, much more often than not. And we just think of kings and rulers now. We think about what believers in North Korea experience with the ruler of North Korea now. Or we think about what Christians in Russia have recently experienced or what Christians in China experience. And you think of the kings of the earth setting themselves against the anointed of the Lord. And verse 4 of the psalm says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, speaking about the sovereignty of God. And it goes on that he will speak to them and it goes For as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And in verse 9, it comes to the point, You shall break them with a rod of iron. Same imagery that is brought out in Revelation 19. And the psalm concludes with this exhortation to kings to fear the Lord with trembling, rejoice, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A beautiful picture of bowing before the king of kings. And then the verse goes on. Verse 16 describes, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And again, we're looking at an Old Testament imagery here from Isaiah 63, where, again, the anointed one is coming, and it says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from me the people's no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So directly from Isaiah 63 is this, this really a dreadful, isn't it dreadful if it, if it weren't glorious, a dreadful image of garments splattered with blood um, And this leads into the final element of our text, which is the final second half of our text, the whole section of verses 17 to 21, the picture of the desolation of war, of the horror and desolation of war. And really what is described here is bracketed by this imagery of birds eating the flesh. It says in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, He called to all the birds that fly overhead directly, Come, gather for the great supper of God. And it goes on to talk about that. And then at the end, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In contrast to the first part of chapter 19 that we looked at last week, where we see this beautiful description of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, We see here this, in a sense, grotesque description of the great supper of God, the supper for the birds. 
In verse 18, it's called that. Scavenger birds in the field of battle and after this deadly warfare. It's almost, it conjures up in my mind what it must have been like uh, for people to have to go out after certain civil war battles where 20,000 soldiers were killed in one day and just so soldiers could hardly bring themselves to go out over that field or World War I, some of the terrible battles of that war. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a great dishonor for the birds to do this to anyone. So the picture is, again, of something awful. And we read here that, in a sense, we're saying, it's being said that everyone who opposes Christ is slain. And we see the description here of the beast and the false prophet being uh, cast alive, thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, another powerful imagery. And that will come out more in chapter 20, where the dragon will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we aren't to think that in chapters 18 and 19, when Babylon is judged, and in chapter 19, when the beast and the false prophet are judged, and in chapter 20, that the dragon, which is Satan, is judged, that those are, like, that those are chronological events. These are all events that take place on the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns. And it's really, as we have looked at these images, if you're like me, it's difficult to absorb it, isn't it? Just to absorb all these images, the symbolic images of the return of Christ. It's really an overwhelming picture. Um, our son and his wife, for one of the scriptures to be, way, to, to be read at their wedding, chose chapter 19 on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Obviously, no one would choose the scripture of this second half about uh, the angel standing in the sun and calling all the birds to come and fly over. I mean, that's just not what you would pick. It's something that we read and our sensibilities are somewhat assaulted by this as we think about it. And we think, but this is scripture. This is the word of God. We have to take it to heart. Uh, This text is the opposite side of the married supper of the land, of the Lamb. It's, uh, it's something else. It's the truth about God's righteous and true judgment. And this is where we come to our applications. What applications can we make from this text? One is this. We must always look at the truth of God's judgment with a deep sense of sorrow and alarm. Stop and think about that. This is the Apostle Paul who can write Philippians, the epistle of joy, filled with rejoicing and joy, and in his prison cell he could be singing hymns and psalms to God, but he's also saying, I have constantly, I have this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because the Apostle Paul had a real sense of what was coming at the judgment of God. We should never speak lightly about hell. We should never joke about hell. Scripture treats hell and God's eternal judgment with terrible seriousness. And in Romans chapter 10, by the way, Paul goes on and he prays for his brothers, uh, according to the flesh, that they would be saved. And so we should do that as well, obviously. 
And what we know about the ever-impending, always-impending return of Jesus Christ, no one knows the hour, is that we should be built up in expectation and hope and longing for that day in one sense, because that is the best day of our lives, but also to be praying and laboring that others would come to know Christ before that day and would not face the dread and awful judgment of that day. So sorrow and alarm because of what we read here. But secondly, the application. The vindication of believers at the return of Christ is a valid consolation in this life. The vindication of believers at the return of Christ is a valid consolation in this life. Think of it this way. In chapters 4 to 22, we see these amazing visions that the Apostle John is given, this book of Revelation. The final judgment to come, the judgments of God revealed throughout this age, but also the final salvation for believers. One commentator describes it this way. He says, it's as if the letters in chapters 2 and 3 are the main thing, the the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which really are letters to the church of all ages, of every place and every time. And then from chapters 4 on, the rest of the book is simply an elaboration and a filling out of the brief promises those churches are given in those letters. They're given the promises to him who overcomes and fill in the blank, different promises, and the rest of the book just elaborates it all. In other words, these churches were facing difficult opposition and persecution and and down through the ages it has often been the case that the people of God have been crushed and oppressed. You can't help but read church history and to see how hard it has been. And nothing is new under the sun. And, and the 20th century was like that. More people died in the 20th century for their faith in Christ than any other century in the history of the church. And it continues that way now. The book of Revelation is saying to believers, take heart. Blessed is the one who endures to the end. Whatever your circumstances might be, take heart. Jesus Christ is going to return. One day the faithful and true rider on the white horse will come and heaven will be opened and every right will be made wrong and justice will be made known throughout the world. And yes, we must always keep praying for our enemies in this life and seeking to love our enemies as Christ commands us to, And who knows but that a persecuting Saul might, by the grace of God, become a beloved Apostle Paul. So yes, love your enemies, but at the same time, because of this point, this vindication of the saints, it is right and proper for believers to find great comfort in the ultimate judgment of God, which will be a massive vindication for believers who have been crushed. Think of how 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 describes this when Paul's encouraging the believers at Thessalonica in light of the persecutions they're experiencing. And he's talking about Jesus' return, but he talks about him coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, verse 8, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about the punishment of hell, essentially. He doesn't use that word. And then he says, 
when he comes, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What a beautiful picture there in 2 Thessalonians 1 of that marveling and the glory it will be for saints when we see Jesus and when he returns. But part of that is in this life to be comforted by that massive vindication on that day of the Lord for believers who were crushed by the beast of demonic government persecution or who were uh, continually attacked by Babylon, the Babylon of worldly seduction. On that last day, justice will be fully accomplished. And in this life, it's hard to even imagine how that will be, but Revelation points us to that truth. And our third and final point of application, this picture of Jesus coming in glory is part of the Bible's full-orbed revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Don't we all want to know Jesus Christ? There's only one way to know Christ and to understand him and to see him with the eye of faith, and that is as the Bible reveals him. We have him revealed in the four Gospels in his earthly ministry and life. We have him revealed in the Old Testament, pointing it to him. We have him revealed in the epistles, which explain his redemptive work when he came in the flesh. And we have the book of Revelation, too, and other books like that, that picture Jesus Christ. And here we have a a clear picture of part of who Jesus Christ is. And if we want to grow in our knowledge of God we have to add this part of Scripture to, in a sense, our repertoire of who we know Jesus to be. And that should lead us to worship, to look at our Lord as the Scripture reveals him and to praise his name for who he is. God has chosen to reveal the full nature of who he is in his Son. And Jesus is full of compassion, but he is also going to judge the world in righteousness. And if you are playing games with God, maybe what you have seen in these verses will pierce your heart and make you see that you must fall before Jesus Christ in faith in his name and give him your life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the rider on the white horse. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Thank you for the morning star of our lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that the day is coming, that the world is rushing along, that is only yet a little while. And Lord, help us to live in light of that day. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.